Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Our conversation today features Dr. Nijay Gupta, professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and author of Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. In our conversation, Nijay shines a light on women leaders in the Bible, explaining their roles and their authority through a close reading of the biblical text and a rich description of the cultural context of the day. Nijay talks about some common misconceptions we have of women in the early church, and he encourages us all to read the Bible with an openness to being surprised by God. I really enjoyed talking with Nijay and hearing his delightful combination of enthusiasm and scholarly expertise, and I've included a bonus at the end of the podcast where Nijay offers his thoughts on Bible translation. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. Nijay Gupta is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Previously, he was a professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary, where he also oversaw the master's thesis program and advises doctoral students. He is the author of the book, Worship That Makes Sense to Paul, and Prepare, Succeed, Advance, a guidebook for getting a PhD in biblical studies and beyond, along with Bible commentaries and over a dozen academic articles in theological journals. Also, good news, we have a special offer for you from InterVarsity Press, a code for 30% off of Nijay's book when you pre-order it at ivpress.com. The book comes out on March 14th, but the discount is available between now and March 21st, 2023. Just enter the promo code WELL23, W-E-L-L-2-3, and I'll put it in the show notes too. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, Tell Her Story, but first I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Tell us what drew you to the study of women leaders in the early church. Yeah, thanks for the question and the discussion. Um, I get this question a lot and I kind of have to do kind of a walk down memory lane to kind of think through, um, you know, where the passion and interest started. Uh, I would say it goes back to my seminary days. Before seminary, you know, I grew up and, and the Christian circles I was in was very traditional. John Piper, these were the days of John Piper, right. the, the heydays of John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I was passionate about complementarianism or anything, but I, I just sort of took it for granted. Mm -hmm. And I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and um, I think starting seminary, I, I was sent this message kind of almost um, uh, tacitly that 
um, I should stay away from the Master Divinity women. I could I could hang wow. out and talk to the women in the counseling program, um, maybe in in the biblical studies, but the but the MDiv women were the ones that were disobeying God. They were the ones that were putting personal agenda over scripture, over orthodoxy. And actually, I was just reminiscing with my wife. We met in seminary. She was one of these MDiv students. <laughs> and uh, we had a, lo a lot of similarities in our background. We both grew up in the Midwest. We both went to uh, major non-Christian universities in the Midwest, large. And we both had a passion for missions. She was a missionary of the Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, and I got to know her and I, I started thinking, she doesn't seem evil. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she loves the Bible. She just wants to follow Jesus. She's discerning, you know, am I allowed to be a pastor as a woman? Like she's trying to figure it out. She's, mm -hmm. we think very similarly about the Bible and about theology. And that started me down a road of questioning what I'd been taught implicitly or tacitly about men and women, because you know, in the environment I grew up in, you know, you saw men up front, you heard preaching from men, men emceed. I mean, it was all men all the time and women sang and all that. But, um, you know, I just had to sit down and really study it. So I, I did study it. I ended up being a TA for Catherine Krager, who was the founder of Christian for Biblical Equality. She started to change my mind about things just by getting to know her and how amazing she was. Um, and I think that's where it started is kind of this um, epiphany, like how could I see things so differently then and then so differently now, and yet my high view of scripture hasn't changed. Right. And part, part of this book really is hermeneutics in this, and I know that's one of those million dollar words, but in the sense that um, you know, I teach a course regularly on women in the New Testament and students are crying. Students are just going through a lot of um, uh, transformation because they've never heard someone teach on these subjects before in a way mm -hmm. that empowers women. And the common question I get is, um, why am I only now hearing about these women? They've always been there in the Bible. You know, I'm... I'm right. 99% of the people I talk about in the book are in the New Testament or in the Bible. And I think that the, the issue there and what, what kind of sparked my interest in writing about this is um, our preachers and teachers have failed mm. to see these women. They failed to recognize these women for what they were doing. And, and I, I was one of those people. And so this in some ways is a kind of uh, comes out of my own journey. Mm. Wow, that's a very relatable story, I think, for many of our listeners um, on, on either side of the, the gender divide. So thank you for that. Well, let's talk about your book. It's entitled Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. And this book was such a delight for me to read. I learned so much. And you paint the culture of biblical times in such a clear and compelling way. And reading the book was a really illuminating experience for me. And I'd like to start by asking something that I'm curious about. You structure your book in a distinctive way where you highlight positive examples of women leaders and describe the culture of that time rather than starting by refuting 
particular interpretations of controversial texts from Paul's letters, although you do address that toward the end. So can you talk about that decision, how you structured the book? Yeah. Um, you know, when I first thought about writing a book like this, the first thing that came to mind to me is there's so many books written on women in the Bible, written by great scholars um, like Cindy Westfall, Susan Hyland, my my colleague Lynn Kohick, so many good books. I thought, mm -hmm. what could I what could I really offer? You know, what could I what could I how could I approach this subject? You know, I've written a lot of commentaries on Philippians and Galatians, Colossians. Um, and what I've noticed is, you know, in church speak, we often use these boxes like women can't be pastors or women can't be elders mm -hmm. uh, or women should be in the home or women should be with the family. So we create these boxes. And what I noticed just through studying the New Testament as part of my daily job is despite these assumptions that there are places and things that women where women should be and should be doing and there are places and things where women shouldn't be and shouldn't be doing women seem to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so this idea that we have sometimes in our heads or even in our sermons we hear are there these dividing lines, mm -hmm. right? You know, women can give a testimony they can't preach. Women can, you know, be a missionary but can't be a pastor. And we create these dividing lines and I just noticed, but in the Bible, they keep showing up in the wrong places. Right. <laughs> um, there, the, there doesn't seem to be a room that was off limits to women. Mm -hmm. And one of those things that really struck me is Romans 16, which I start the book off with and I come back to again later, is Paul gives this really long commendation list of women, Tryphena and Tryphosa. He talks about men, but he, he mentions a lot of women and a few things are really striking about that. One is that they all seem to be leaders in ministry mm -hmm. um, just by the way he talks, right? When he says they worked hard for the Lord, that's that's a kind of technical term for doing ministry. They labored, and I talk about that in the book. Um, one thing is he doesn't separate the list into men and women, which you would pretty much naturally do in the ancient world. Um, he, uh, number two, a lot of these women are single, apparently. They're, they're seemingly single uh, or widows, mm -hmm. um, which starts to upset some stereotypes we have about, you know, the the, the the pastor's wife as kind of a you know de facto pastor or something like that or she takes care of the children and then she does ministry when mm -hmm. she has time so this text upsets a lot of the stereotypes that we have so i thought okay an interesting approach would be instead of starting with a prohibition text which start with hey women don't right um let's start with what are women doing where are they doing it and how can we actually form our understanding of ministry based on that rather than based on these boxes that are kind of artificial, for example, uh, the term pastor, we, we, we put so much into this term today. Ordination, pastor, and the term really isn't that used that much in the New Testament. And it isn't really something that we can say women or men can't be, can or can't be pastors for these reasons. So we have to be talking about other terminology. And Paul wasn't really into titles. He, he honestly wasn't. He rarely ever reuses a title for a leader. Um, the most common language he uses is they care, leaders care for people, and they work hard. If we, if, if we went to an Apostle Paul school of ministry, that would be day one, <laughs> is pastors, ministers, leaders care for people and work hard. 
And so I want to start with these stories to really kind of upset and mess with the boxes that we create and really question, are those boxes really as neat and tidy as we think they are? So I'd really like to get into a few of the portraits that you paint in mm -hmm. your book. And I'd like to start with Deborah. Can you remind us of her story in the Old Testament and talk about some of the notable features of her leadership? Yeah, you know, it, it, it does kind of, it, it might seem strange that I start a book about, you know, women in the early church with Deborah. Um, but what I love about the story of Deborah, which I'm going to recap in a minute, is she seems like a figure out of time to us if we play into gender rule stereotypes. And so if I'm in an elevator, you know, for 30 seconds with somebody and they say, yeah, women, women can't be passers there too. And dot, dot, dot. I don't go straight to Priscilla or Phoebe. I just go right to Deborah because it's so easy to talk about Deborah if people understand her story and what role she played. So Deborah's in the book of Judges. The, the term judge is a little bit of a misnomer because we think like Judge Judy, Gavel and Roe. Right. Um, and that's not exactly what a judge was. Um, a judge, you know, we have to think about the period of the judges as uh, after after Joshua and before um, uh, before the the monarchy, right? The kings, mm -hmm. and so you had this vacuum of leadership. You have Israel in the Promised Land; they failed to drive out the Canaanites, and so now they have to live with being harassed and plagued by hostile neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, they get themselves into trouble, Israelites, and they need help uh, to fight off their enemies. So there's this pattern in the book of Judges where God raises up this figure. So it's easy to think of Gideon or Samson. So God raises up these figures as basically temporary warrior leaders who have some kind of governing or executive role. And, and what role they have depends on the leader. But for all intents and purposes, for that period of time, they're the nation's leader. Um, and some of them are not so great, like Samson. It's a mess. It's like the right. worst book. <laughs> yeah, there's some crazy. And, and Gideon, it's, you know, I, I, I know Gideon has been valorized throughout the years, you know, the, the Gideon's Bible and all that. But if you read the story of Gideon, he's not the best leader that Israel's mm -hmm. ever had. But they're kind of a temporary uh, deliverer, warrior, leader. And Deborah's in there amongst these men. What's interesting about Deborah, a few things are really fascinating about Deborah. One is she, uh, the, other, the other judges don't actually do any judging. Mm -hmm. um, not in the sense that we think of judging, but Deborah does. So mm -hmm. she kind of has a adjudicating seat where people can bring cases to her, kind of like Supreme Court cases. And I just think of a long line of people with grievances and they yeah. come to her and she's judging these cases according to the law, mm -hmm. the Jewish law. Uh, and um, we're meant to even imagine Moses uh, who had a similar kind of role for Israel. There's some similarities, some parallels there. Um, the second thing that's interesting about Deborah is she's married, but we don't know, we don't hear about from her husband, Lapidoth. Hey. So it says wife, wife of Lapidoth. He doesn't seem to be around. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's not involved. 
Third, she's a prophet. Uh, what does that mean? It means she has special spiritual insight from God, and she's expected to use that to guide and lead the people. It's not that's not said of Gideon and Samson in the same way. Mm. Um, uh, and um, so there's this. I'll just recap really briefly. She's in power. She's meant to help Israel. Um, there's this enemy that they're meant to fight, and the leader of the army of the Israelite army, Barak. Uh, is supposed to go fight that enemy. He wants Deborah to go uh, with him. She's not supposed to, but she does. She does, and then it's actually a woman that um, ends up killing the enemy. Um, but the Israelites ultimately have victory over their enemies, and there's this song in Judges of victory uh, for Deborah and Barak. The reason I bring up that song is you will sometimes hear people say, yes, Deborah was a judge. Yes, she was leader of the people, but she shouldn't have been. Hmm, it right, should have yeah. been a man and a man didn't step up and Barack didn't step up and mm -hmm. all of that. But actually that song of Deborah and Barack is a hermeneutical key to tell us what the author of Judges thinks about Deborah. And that uh, song, if you read it, is nothing but positive. And it actually is focuses on Deborah and not Barack. They sing together, but the song, it actually hails the victory as Deborah's, it says she arose a mother over Israel, which is what I kind of named the chapter. And so we can uh, conjecture all day long about whether she should have been judge, but Judges 5 tells us that she was a great judge. So you're saying that if um, in the scriptures, the message that she shouldn't have been judge wanted to be conveyed, that maybe in that song, it would have been, well, she's second best but we're glad we had her, but it's totally different. Yeah. Or it would have just focused on Barack because he's right. the military leader and she just kind of went along maybe as a prophet. You could make that case, but not, not with that song. If we didn't yeah. have the song, then it's kind of maybe flip of a coin. I don't know. I think she, I do think there are a lot of clues. We're meant to see her as a new Moses just mm -hmm. from judges four, but judges five to me is crystal clear. And, and if you read that, there's an interesting focus on women. There's a focus on, uh, uh, Deborah, there's a focus on JL, and there's a focus on the mother of Sisera, which is the enemy, oh. uh, waiting for Sisera to return, and he never does. And to have a battle song focused on women in this period of history right. is bizarre. Um, you have these few flashes throughout history of kind of focus on women, maybe the Amazon, you know, the Amazonian women, you know, you have every now and again, but this would be one of those moments where you say, something really special is going on here with this song yeah wow that's a great that's a great image and a great picture let's talk about um you you give a really wonderful description of the role of women in jesus's life and you you paint it so rich and full and you show us through the text and the history at the time that women held a more central role than one might have believed. So right. tell us a little bit about those neglected aspects of women in history. Yeah, for sure. You know, maybe you're sitting in Sunday school as a kid and, you know, you're being taught about Jesus and his disciples. And it's easy to imagine Jesus and 12 people wandering around, you know, the Mediterranean um, and, and they bump into women every now and again, but it's pretty much, you know, a dude's club, you know, right. and they're camping out <laughs> and, you know, they're making s'mores and, you know, whatever that Jesus is doing with his, with his male disciples. 
um, I've been learning from you know scholars like Barbara Reed and Scott Spencer and uh, and others. Um, we need to really widen our view to see Jesus traveling with actually a, a bigger group of people hmm. who were, and if we hesitate to use the word disciples, I don't, but if we did, we might say followers. Mm -hmm. um, so if we have in mind a wider group of people that were followers, we have to imagine people like uh, Mary Magdalene, right? Luke, the gospel Luke tells us, I think chapter eight, about a group of women that were part of Jesus' entourage, that were healed of diseases or uh, demons were cast out, and they followed Jesus around, and they weren't just servants or, um, you know, hangers-on. They, they were genuinely a part of his ministry. And one of the reasons we know that, and I point this out in my book, is the angel after Jesus raises from the dead and the women at the tomb are talking to the angel, I think this is in Luke, uh, the angel says, don't you remember that he taught and then talks about that he would die and rise again. That was a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. Hmm. And so these women are actually being held responsible for that teaching, right? Wow. It wasn't that they were eavesdropping like, Oh, while the pot is boiling, I happen to be hearing, you know what I mean? We were sitting in the way back. No, the angel is saying, you were taught this. Mm -hmm. um, and we get confirmation about that with the story of Mary and Martha, where she's, you know, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. This idea that Jesus teaches women directly. Why does Jesus teach his people directly? So they can do ministry. Right. Right. So um, actually the story of Jesus sending his disciples two by two. Uh, some people think actually he's not sending out male pairs, he's sending out couples, um, which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In fact, and uh, in the Roman 16, Paul mentions Andronicus and Junia, and Paul specifically mentions they were in Christ before me, which means they represent an earlier era of Christian leadership mm -hmm. prior to Paul. It's hard for us to imagine that. Right, because right. we think Paul's, you know, just took the baton right after Jesus rose from the dead. No, there was some earlier strand of leadership. Mm -hmm. Peter's obviously in that category. Andronicus and Junia were, and mm -hmm. some people think actually they may have been sent out by Jesus when he sent out the seventy, and so he's sending out couples. So that starts to paint and color a different picture about who Jesus is with, who Jesus teaches. And it makes a lot more sense yeah. why Mary Magdalene is called by the Eastern Church Isapostolos, equal to mm -hmm. the apostles or apostle to the apostles. Women weren't these kind of one-off figures popping up as extras. They were always there. And it's important that we think about that as we're reading the story of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one more person from the New Testament, Phoebe, um, mm -hmm. the woman who carried Paul's letter to the Romans. And the chapter you have on this gave me such a broader understanding of the role of a letter carrier at that mm -hmm. time. So can you say a little bit more about how letters functioned at the time and how Absolutely. Christians used them and then the role of letter carriers like Phoebe? Yeah. So, you know, obviously in the ancient world, they didn't have 
a postal service like we have today mm -hmm. with UPS and, you know, FedEx and all that. And so official um, correspondence, like government correspondence, they might have a system in place for that. But private correspondence, you had to figure out how you're going to get your document from you to who you want to receive it. And so you had a few options. You could send, you could hire somebody, a professional mm -hmm. career, right? And, and that's expensive. And it's also like, are they going to open the letter? Are they going to lose the letter? Mm -hmm. There wasn't insurance. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, you could send it with a slave and perhaps Christians did that sometimes. Um, a slave who was, you know, skilled at travel. Or most commonly, I think you sent it with a friend, a trusted friend. Um, and the early Christians, we get the sense, did that. Mm -hmm. um, we have people like Epaphroditus mm -hmm. uh, in Philippians that's mentioned. We have Tychicus in Colossians that's mentioned. And in Romans, we have Phoebe. Um, now, letter carriers, uh, that might be kind of a misnomer because it makes us just think that their job is to drop off a letter, but they're traveling sometimes hundreds of miles without a car. <laughs> right, right. Right. I don't, you know, sometimes I drive to my friend in Eugene, which is two hours away, and it's a long drive. You know, it's like 80, 90 miles. It's a long drive, and that's in a car. So imagine going 80 or 90 miles by foot or on a horse or on a donkey or whatever. Uh, long, long way to go. So you got to make sure this is the right person for this job. And they're not just going to show up there, you know, eat a banana and head home. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're going to stay for a while because mm -hmm. they're tired and it takes time to recover and you'll need money and resources. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So the idea that it's just a return delivery is very unlikely, especially mm -hmm. if you're traveling hundreds of miles or dozens of miles. So all that to say uh, letter carriers end, end up being more like agents mm -hmm. of the sender, especially when the information is professional versus, you know, here's how I'm doing, hope you're doing right. well. If it's kind of a here's how I'm doing, you know, um, you might wait till someone's going to that area and just have someone drop it off for you. But for the apostles, this was kind of life or death correspondence. I mean, this official teaching, right? This is huge. And so we know Phoebe uh, is uh, in kind of the Corinthian area, Cancria, Paul's with her. And he sends her, and we know she's going to be there for a while. This is the, this is the imperial city. Like, this is the capital city. It's a big deal. And so uh, he's sending her to a church that has never met him before and mm -hmm. with a 16-chapter letter. Uh, of heavy substance and they're going to have questions <laughs> right right because he says some provocative things in that letter multiple times he talks about the problem of shame with his mm -hmm. gospel so they're going to have some issues and concerns about his gospel he's already uh, aware of that who are they going to talk to they're going to talk to phoebe for mm -hmm. two reasons one is she's the messenger right? She's the face of Paul for all intents and purposes. Two, she's eventually going back to Paul. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of questions about what she's doing in Rome. Is she there on personal business? Is she there to do ministry? I think she's there to do ministry. But even if she wasn't, 
the fact that she's sent by Paul and going back to Paul makes her a proxy. So these letter carriers often functioned as an extension of the authority of the sender. Yeah. So for example, in, in the gospels, the parable of the wicked tenants, right? So you have this owner of a farm, he hires tenant farmers, and then the owner, you know, goes away to live somewhere else and he wants to reap uh, the profit. Mm -hmm. So he sends his slave and they kill his slave because it's like, we're going to keep this for ourselves. Then he sends another slave. Then he says, okay, I'll send my son. They all respect him, mm -hmm. right? Then they, then they kill the son. And then what does the father, what does the father do? He says, I'm going to kill them because killing the son is like killing me. This gives us a glimpse into this concept that these messengers aren't just messengers. Right, right. Right. They're an extension of the sender. Mm -hmm. And it's not always that way, but I think it's that way for things that are really important like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we paint the picture that way, the Romans 16 is really important. Paul's commendation of a woman, Paul's sending of a woman, and in his investing of authority in her. Something I point out in the book that I don't think people really think about is Paul knew lots of men, leaders right. <laughs> in Corinth. He had Achaicus, he had Gaius, he had Stephanus, right? He had mm -hmm. a bunch of men to choose from and he chose her. Now, let me say yeah. she's already going. Okay, but this is a really important letter. He could also send <laughs> Stephanus. Right. Yeah. Right, he could also send Gaius, but he sends her apparently by herself. Mm -hmm. I mean, she may have traveled with an entourage but a lot of a lot of weight a lot of weight is on her shoulders. Yeah. That is so fascinating. It makes so much sense. So, I want to talk a little bit more about um the Roman period. I was really struck by reading some of your more general notes about the role of women um at this time in history in mm -hmm. in Rome um and in the area and it seems that modern day readers make a lot of assumptions about women's role at that time that are simply not true. I mean, you've already been discussing some of them. So what are some of the common mistakes that we make in the stories we tell about that culture today in these times as we're thinking about it? Yeah, um, you know, this is really important because we play into a lot of assumptions and stereotypes about ancient women that just aren't true. Mm -hmm. And we have that because those stereotypes make sense to us and they're easy to understand and teach. Um, and those stereotypes exist, but they're inaccurate. So let's just talk about a modern anecdote that is really important. And that is when John MacArthur said about Beth Moore, go home, right? That the famous yeah. two words <laughs> that, you know, represent how people think about gender roles and biblical ideals in biblical times mm -hmm. that, you know, the man's sphere is business ministry, you know, and the woman's sphere is home and family. Mm -hmm. Now in the Roman world, that is what you might see on signs or kind of in uh, kind of cultural stereotypes, but the on the ground reality was very different. Um, so I like to talk about the way we think the ancient world works as kind of a little house on the prairie mm -hmm. <laughs> approach where we think, you know, mother is, you know, 
sewing and daughter is cooking and son is out chopping wood, you know, and the father's out hunting. And that's probably true in the ancient world in rural areas, but especially in the Roman world, it was a very diverse metropolitan context. And um, one thing we have to understand about the Roman world is there were multiple layers or indexes of power. Mm-hmm. One index was gender. And so that's why we have those stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you, you know, uh, saw statues of women that were, you know, created by the empire, most of them are going to be trying to broadcast a message of the domestic woman. Mm -hmm. But another layer of the power index was class, social Mm -hmm. class. And so if you were a woman of high class and wealth, um, there were a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not be official, like you can't be governor, but you could wield a lot of social power, kind of like social media, mm-hmm. where you know you might not you know be royalty, but you could have twenty million followers because uh, you're popular. Right. Uh, you know, class kind of gave you another mechanism for wielding influence. Uh, another index was productivity or efficiency if you know think about athletes right Mm -hmm. today think about entertainers they have to fight gender uh discrimination but if they're really really good they could be really successful and that was like and the rome loved that Mm -hmm. because if you could bring notoriety money power to rome they could overlook (laughs) certain things so you could have women who could wield power in politics as the spouse uh, of a politician. You could have women wield power in religion, which was very important to life in a way it's not the same in the United States today. Uh, In business, if you were great at business, Mm -hmm. um, we see analogies to this today, right? Where, you know, women in the entertainment industry before the civil rights movements could wield a lot of back channel power yeah. Um, so we can conceive of that. So when that reality is more present to our awareness, it's not so strange to have a Phoebe. It's not so strange to have a Priscilla who teaches Apollos because these things uh, were not absent from wider culture. I want to ask you, I want to ask you another question. I had so many questions reading this book. It was so (laughs) stimulating. Um, I was really struck by something you wrote in the appendix. You have an appendix where you talk about um, Paul's letters and those kind of tricky passages. And you write about some of the disappointment that present day readers can feel when reading ancient submission texts, you know, wives submit to your husband's. And those texts that don't seem to reject the oppression of women. And as you reflect on the way our culture today is more equitable, you say it is simply that the New Testament writers did not have the capacity to imagine that ultimate good end, let alone articulate it in their own time. And then you share this amazing story, um, really, really tender story from your own life about your daughter's illness. Can you share that here? 
Yeah. So just to kind of set up the story, um, my students do feel disappointment when they read, many of them, when they read the submission passages, because they think, how can the Paul who wrote Galatians 3.28, neither male nor female, um, you know, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, how can he also write the household codes that reinforce gender submission, you know, submission of women and slavery? How yeah. could that, how can you do that? And they feel kind of betrayal, almost mm -hmm. a betrayal by Paul. Um, and they ask questions like, why wouldn't he say women be free? Why wouldn't he say slaves be free? So I've been in dialogue with my colleague, Scott McKnight, uh, at, at Northern Seminary about this a lot, because Scott's done a lot of writing in this area. And Scott made a comment that really stood out to me in one of his books, and it's that Paul was blind to the evils of the institution of slavery. Hmm. What he meant by that was not that he didn't realize that slaves had it bad. Uh, Paul knew that slaves had it bad. That's why he says, treat your slaves well. But Paul didn't have the full gospel imagination to, un to, to think about the whole world accepting abolition, mm -hmm. right? He just didn't have that. So I, that led me to think about other situations where that happens to us where we kind of yearn for something, but um, our imagination isn't big enough. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, uh, Libby, uh, had cancer from ages one to three. She's 11 now, cancer-free, praise God. Amen. Um, but, um, you know, I remember uh, when we were in her early days of chemotherapy and, and she had leukemia, so you're in chemotherapy for a long, long, long time. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we get these pills and she was really small, so she couldn't swallow pills. So we'd have to crush the pills. And I remember the doctor saying to me and my wife, you're going to be tempted to not give her all of the powder because we'd had to mix it with, with apple juice. Um, you're going to be tempted to, because we use a pill crusher. Mm -hmm. You're going to be tempted to not put all of the chemo into the apple juice when you squirt it into her mouth. And I was like, why? And I realized later as I was crushing the pills, there's a skull and crossbones on the <laughs> bottle because it's toxic. And I had to wear gloves, surgical gloves, when I crushed the pills because it, the powder shouldn't touch me. And I had to wear a mask. Mm. You know, this was, you know, uh, 20, 2012, 2012. Yeah. I had to wear a mask when I crushed it because I wasn't supposed to inhale. And I'm like, I'm an adult. She's a right, one-year-old. Right. <laughs> and I have to put this in her. And essentially, the reason why your hair falls out, the reason why you have mouth sores, throat sore, uh, sores, is because it's poison. I mean, it's essentially yeah. poison. Um, and yet, this is the best treatment we have now. Mm -hmm. And it's barbaric. And I bet 100 years from now, we'll look back and say, that was crazy. That was crazy that we yeah. thought poison <laughs> was the best way to treat chemotherapy. Now, it worked. Mm -hmm. And she's cancer free. But I remember when I was crushing those pills, I prayed and I longed and I hoped for something better than chemotherapy, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And I'm always hoping for improvements to technology, improvements to medicine. And they're always fine tuning it, making it better and finding therapeutics and treatments. But this is what we have. Mm -hmm. We want to make better what we have. Because we don't really have a cure for it in the way that we might in 100 years. And I just wonder if that's the way it was for Paul, 
where when he's writing these texts that are really hard for us to read, it's a concession in the sense that he knows that slavery is not what God wants for his world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he can't imagine a world without it. He yeah. knows that submission of women is not good uh, for, for the world. It's not, it's not even how he himself engages with women. But I think his mentality was, let's transform this relationship without changing the system that we have. Yeah. Um, the way I try to think about it for today is I imagine what if we could transport Paul into our time now and say, hey, we have equal marriage. Because I don't even think he could imagine that just because right. it didn't exist in his time. I think at first he'd be like, what? Oh, that's crazy. And then we'd start showing him relationships that are healthy and vibrant and good. And I think he would say, yeah, that's 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 the full realization of Galatians 3.28. That's yeah. my take. It's such a great story. Thank you for, for sharing that. And it is such a, a gracious way and like a healing way of looking at these texts from Paul. It's really, it's mm. really helpful perspective. Well, I want to turn now to some practical questions. And um, I'd like to talk about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. So first, um, how do you recommend listeners integrate this book with their own scripture reading? Do you have ideas about that? I will say two of my students at Northern Seminary are writing um, and have drafted a study guide. Uh, uh, I think it'll be a free study guide, uh, but I, a study guide to tell her story. They they actually try to integrate scripture readings and um, they'll put some anecdotes and some questions for discussion. Um, uh, how, how would I use this? Um, I mean, the text, you know, you can figure out from the chapters, but, um, you know, I, I think it's important, you know, the way I wrote this book was really just living in these texts that have these stories of women and just noticing what's said about these women. Um, Paul, as far as I can tell, had nothing negative to say about any woman. I mean, he does, does tell Yodi and Setiki to agree, but he's not saying they were bad. Mm -hmm. He actually commends them in that passage. And so I think just spending quality time with these texts and just soaking in the things that Paul says about women who are doing front lines ministry work, um, I think just it's almost healing for people to just kind of bathe themselves in those texts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I, I guess if I had to summarize like what I really hope anyone and everyone could take away from my book, it is that um, scripture and, and the gospel is so much bigger than the categories that we use, so much bigger than, than the boxes we use. And I had a professor when I was doing my PhD and I would sit in on his undergraduate classes uh, to be a TA and, and just to enjoy what he was teaching. And he would tell his, his equivalent of freshman students, this is a UK, he'd tell his students, read the Bible in such a way that it will surprise you. Hmm. Uh, you might call it a hermeneutic of surprise. Mm -hmm. Because we assume what the Bible says before we open it. Yeah. Right. I know this passage. I heard it in science school. I've read it a million times. But what my professor, Stephen Barton, uh, what he would what he was trying to get at is there's a certain mode of reading that we put ourselves in. 
to enjoy being open to let scripture speak to us afresh. Mm -hmm. And this book is on this topic of women. You can do it on other topics too, but that's really what I want people to do is really open their hearts and minds to what God is saying, not just what they think God is saying. Mm -hmm. I want to ask um, how readers can follow you and your work. What's on the horizon? I have heard from some people I know in the publishing industry that there is a special dictionary coming out. So can you tell <laughs> us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, IVP has been wonderful to work with. Um, they obviously did tell her story, but um, you know, coming in April is the dictionary Paul and his letters second mm -hmm. edition, which is one of these, you know, great big academic dictionaries, but it's affordable. Um, it's great for pastors, students, um, scholars. It's kind of one of those must have things for students and scholars and pastors. Um, I was privileged to be an editor with my colleagues, Scott McKnight and Lynn Kohick. Um, so that's exciting. But if you want to kind of, uh, you know, stalk me a little bit or follow what I'm up to, mm -hmm. um, I recommend um, I have a blog called Crux Sola. Um, you could just Google my name and you'll find it. We'll and put I, all this in the show notes. Too. Yeah, yeah. I, I do academic stuff there. I do book sales and, you know, what's going on in publishing world. Uh, also, I have a podcast that I co-host with my friend, Dr. AJ Swoboda called Slow Theology, which is kind of about Bible theology and spiritual formation from two guys that just want to be honest about our ups and downs with Jesus and in this messy world. And um, I have um, a magazine column with Fathom Magazine, and I'm doing a series right now on uh, the Bible and emotions. It was such a joy in this interview to get a real sense of Nijay's love for learning and love for scripture. I know that my own Bible reading has already been enriched through reading Tell Her Story, and I hope you might pick up a copy for yourself too. Remember the discount for Nijay's book, Well23 at ivypress.com. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our conversation where Nijay offers some practical thoughts about Bible translation. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in to this excerpt from my interview with Nijay. Yeah, um, you know, let me say, um, I love studying Greek. I'm a Greek nerd. I've taught Greek for years and years, but I don't want to give anyone the impression that they can't trust their English translations. Our English mm -hmm. translations, the people that make them, um, they are uh, very well trained to do that. Um, so I don't want my book to come across as telling people their Bibles are lying to them. Right. <laughs> At the same time, 
there's an Italian proverb uh, that is often used by translators, which is traditore tradutore, which means translators are liars. <laughs> and the reason we have that proverb is because every translation is going to be imperfect because uh, languages are not fully compatible. Yeah. And so if you know Spanish, you're trying to translate a phrase, it's, it's not going to be a 100% correspondence. It, it's going to be close. Mm -hmm. It's going to capture the gist. But it's like that with Greek and English. Um, English is going to give you a close approximation. But it's not going to be perfect. And the reality is um, scholars agree on a vast majority mm -hmm. of what things mean in the Bible. 99%. But that 1%, we're still learning. We're still yeah. struggling. We're still growing. Now, that's hard for people sometimes because they want everything to be neat and tidy and perfect because it's God, God's word. I believe God's word is perfect. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of it is imperfect. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're always figuring stuff out. I, I have the privilege of serving on the translation committee of the New Living Translation. And we actually do periodic updates and revisions. Mm -hmm. I've spent about a hundred hours working on some revisions that we're going to do wow. on it. And those revisions aren't because the Bible's wrong or anything like that, but because we're trying to just perfect or get closer to the best possible accurate translation. Mm -hmm. So what's my recommendation? Don't lock yourself into one translation. No one translation is perfect. And anyone that tells you that, even those translators have tried to deceive you in some way. Mm -hmm. um, because it's important that you consult different translations. Um, because human bias is natural. Yeah. We all have bias. And so consulting different translations is going to help you say, oh, why are these translations different? And then you pick up a Bible study, you pick up a commentary, you pick up uh, or you watch a YouTube video that's going to go into it in more detail. So I encourage people, use a parallel Bible, use Bible Gateway, use different translations, and just notice when things are different as an opportunity to say, why do scholars and translators disagree on this and study it?